No matter what kind of melody it has, if the words don't say anything, it doesn't connect with me. And good Lord, wouldn't that be terrible if it was a number one hit and you have to sing it forever and ever and you don't even like the song? Country music superstar Reba McIntyre. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Reba McIntyre recorded her first song in 1976 when she was just 21. Now, her first number one song wouldn't come for another decade, but ever since then, she's been on a roll and she is a country music icon. In 1994, Reba wrote an autobiography, and that's when I met her. And, as you can imagine, this is another one of those times when I was very starstruck, but she immediately put me at ease. And that day, I also brought my 11 and 13-year-old daughters and my wife with me to meet up one of our favorite performers. In fact, at one point during this interview, you'll hear a brief exchange between Reba and my wife. Oh, and after we listen to this interview, stick around because I want to tell you one of my favorite celebrity stories. So here now from 1994, Reba McIntyre. Family is very, very important to me. That's my roots. That's my heritage. I'm very proud of them. Thank God they're a little bit proud of me. And that's that's one thing that makes me work hard to do good, to do my best, because I never want them to be ashamed of me in any way. I don't get the sense that you're a performer just because you like music. I get the feeling that you're a performer because music helps you send a message to people and, and, and get a message across and say something, communicate with people. You're exactly right. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, the music is what delivers the message, I, absolutely. I, I never really even thought about it that way, but that's very true. If you couldn't have been a musician, would you have been some other type of communicator? Would you have been a school teacher? Yes. I have my degree in elementary education. I never taught. I did my student teaching, but I didn't teach because I went right into the music. I did had you grade a... on the curve? <laughs> I would have. I would have because <laughs> I always liked that in school. Um, about the time I, I finished my Student teaching at Kiowa, Oklahoma. I got a contract with a Polygram Mercury, and so it was getting a lot busier for me, so I didn't go into the teaching at all. Does it surprise you that you have this ability to, to if, you, if you concentrate on it and what your heart is saying, to take the right path among the many paths that life offers us? Well, the thing that I try to do is when I have a decision to make, which way to go, I usually say both of them out loud, and which one ever makes me feel better, that's one I go with, and that's why I follow my gut. Because there's a number of places in this book, well, you know you wrote it, yeah. uh, where, <laughs> where, where you're offered option A or option B, and in some uh-huh. cases C, D, E, F, and G, and all the way, uh-huh. and you have this uncanny ability to choose the right one, or what, looking back on it, it was the right one. Well, thanks. I, I, I say it's my gut feeling. Um, I can't take credit and just give myself the credit. I always ask for guidance. I think the good Lord up above has put out a great plan for my life, and, and I always have felt that if I let him pick the, the path, that it would always be the right one, and that I'm, I don't think I'm smart enough to make those kind of decisions, so I let him make them for me. Could you have guessed as a youngster that someday you'd be performing, not only performing in front of thousands and millions of people at a time and going on book tours and concert tours and records and CDs, but that you'd be in videos blowing up boats? <laughs> No, I never thought I'd be blowing up boats on a video. No, you know, everything that I had thought was the music business. All my hopes and dreams and aspirations and the things that I thought it took to make a country music star, I passed all those the first year. It takes so much more endurance, hard work, perseverance, 
a curiosity to see what more you can do. But at the beginning, I thought all you do, you just go in there in the studio and you're with a bunch of musicians. You make a record. It's on the radio. You're a star. You make lots of money. Well, it didn't happen that way for me. I did. I went into the studio and I cut a record and my first record went to number, I think it says in the book, 88. Uh, and then it died at 88, and uh, my next one went probably to 82. And, and, you know, it took me a long time. I was uh, My first record was recorded in 86, no, 76, and it was 81 until I had a number one record. So it was a long, long process, but it was a learning process. And, two, I would like to publicly thank Polygram Mercury for keeping me on the label instead of dropping me after my second album. I had eight albums with them and only two number one records. So I thank them from the bottom of my heart for the great education and keeping me as long as they did. And you found out about your number one song while you were sitting in the garage waiting for the bus to be fixed? We were in Texas, and my driver said, uh, something's wrong with the bus, and, and the front wheel feels like it's going to fall off. Well, the lug nuts were working loose, and I thought we were going to lose the whole tire. So we pulled off into, a, um, into this garage, kind of the side of the road, mechanic garage shop. And everybody was on the bus, you know, with a generator on, watching television and videotapes. And I was sitting on this greasy bench uh, with the telephone. You know, it was just like a garage. And I called my manager, Don Williams, Andy Williams' brother. He was my manager at the time. And I said, Don, anything going on? Not much here going on because we're, we're stuck in a garage. He said, well, matter of fact, yeah, your, um, your song just went number one. And I sat there in that, that old uh, greasy garage just crying my eyes out. I was so thrilled. And I called Charlie, my husband at the time, and he said, yeah, I know. Don already called me. So I hung up from him, and I called Mama. And, boy, we, we cried and we laughed and we celebrated over the telephone. And from there it was all downhill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad you were just a one-hit wonder. It was, just it, a, was, it was a lot of work. You know, it, people say, well, once you have a number one record, boy, it's easy. That's when the work begins. It was the hard part. It was the hard part getting it, uh, getting another number one record. I didn't think I was ever going to get another one. And, and the next one was uh, Somebody Should Leave. And then you want, well, it'd be nice to say I have a gold record. And it was a long time. It was 86 until I had a gold record. So it just kept being, you know, one goal that I had. You know, 10 years later, you get another goal achieved, and you keep working hard at it. Of course, a lot of people, I think, also seem to think, well, what's, what's the big deal? All right, you have a number one record. You just go to the file, f- pull out another one. Okay, yeah, it's a number one record. And record mm-hmm. that. And it, it's just there's a lot of nuances that you would tell us about that uh, I would have never thought of. Yeah, it's, it's really hard to find a great song. The music song. business is a tough business. It's very competitive. I mean, there are so many new artists out right now that are looking for that number one song you're talking about uh, that I'm trying to find, too. And there's just so many songwriters out there. And, you know, even Don Schlitz, who was the selected the, the greatest and the number one songwriter of the year for like three or four years in a row, you know, he doesn't write a hit song every day. I've been blessed enough to write with him. And we've, we've written some songs that I've recorded. So it's, it's really tough to be that good and lucky and blessed enough to write a monster song. And just because it's a great song doesn't necessarily mean it's a great song for you. Exactly. I've passed on songs that uh, Garth Brooks has recorded, um, George Strait recorded. I passed on them. I just didn't feel they were good for me. And then when they come out and they come become a number one record, and I tell somebody, you know, I passed on that song. They say, well, you're crazy. I said, no, it wasn't right for me. I don't think it would have done that well for me. 
it just wasn't right. When you hear a song for the first time, are you listening to the melody and what you could do with it musically, or are you listening to the words, the message it's conveying? The words. That comes first? Oh, the words are first, absolutely. No matter what kind of melody it has, if the words don't say anything, it doesn't connect with me. And good Lord, wouldn't that be terrible if it was a number one hit and you have to sing it forever and ever and you don't even <laughs> like the song? So basically, I have to love the song to get in there and sing it. I, I am an actress, but I'm not that good of an actress to get up on stage 127 times a year and sing this song that I can't stand. Usually when we have a song that I'm tired of and that I've sung for so long, I, I go to Narvel, my husband and manager, and he's also the director of our show, and I'll say, Narvel, I'm not getting into this song. He said, yeah, I can tell you're not. And I said, well, let's replace it. And he said, okay, next, next single comes out, we'll replace that song. So you have to love them. And I listened to millions of songs to find 10 for the, uh, for the album. You have high hopes, of course, that whenever you hear a song, you decide you're going to record it, you put it on an album, you hope it's going to reach the right kinds of listeners, you mm -hmm. hope it's going to touch something in them. But sure. did you anticipate the reaction to Is There Life Out There? No. Absolutely not. When I first time, I remember exactly where I was. I was driving from home into the office, and I was stopping at the four-way stoplight, and this song was on. I just put the tape in, and I thought, wow, my cousin, Tricia Ann Hamilton, she can really relate to this song. And she told me that later on after I released it as a single. And I thought, you know, one or two other people. Letters, people stopping me on the street, in the supermarket, at concerts, tell me that song changed their life. They went back to school. Their daughters, who had quit their senior year of high school, went back and got their diploma. 55-year-old women going back to college, getting their degree. I was so thrilled. I mean, and I, and I called uh, Rick Giles and Susan Longanger, who wrote the song, and I told them, I said, you guys have no idea how many lives you have touched. And they just cry. There's one in this studio. Really? Did you go back to school because of that song? I was in school uh -huh. when it came out. Uh, and I'm in a career that is very male-dominated and is getting very discouraged. Uh-huh. So that song gave you help? Yeah. yeah. going. That's great. It, That's great. It did indeed. That's wonderful. Which, again, comes back to this whole theme of your... This is, this is so much more than... <laughs> Yes, you're a great musician, but there's more than just music involved in this whole, this whole story of yours. You know, music is just kind of the, the costume. It's real funny. In my stage show, you're, I'm up there singing songs, but the songs, the words in it, is the thing that touches. It's not really the music, it's the words. The music adds the emphasis, whether it's happy or sad, meaningful or... Um, it's just for your enjoyment. That sets the tone, the mood. And the words are the thing that penetrate your heart. Now, that's, that's my interpretation. Now, now Narvel is the opposite. He listens to the music first. And the words, um, I'll play him a demo tape of a song that I'm crazy about, and he'll say, oh, it's, it's just not, I, I don't like the music that much. I said, what are you listening to? <laughs> Didn't you hear the words? He said, no, let me hear it again. So everyone listens to music differently. I'm, I'm more or less like him. I, I, I can go for years and not really pay much attention to the words because yeah. the melody is so captivating uh -huh. or the performance of the melody is so captivating, the yeah. harmony or something. You know, you can send chills down my spine with your music. Uh -huh. She's over there crying because of the words. Exactly. You know, I think the women listen to words more than men. 
Women are just more emotional sometimes. This is true. Do you enjoy doing the videos? The videos are a lot like movies. The end result, once you watch it, you're so thrilled you, do, you did it. Doing it is some of the hardest work I've ever done. Um, Larry King and I were just talking about it because you, you get in there and you, you hurry up, you wait. You, they come get you like at 5 o'clock in the morning. They get you in makeup, you get some breakfast, and you go back to your trailer. You fall asleep because you're, you, know, you don't have anything to do. And so about 11 o'clock that morning, they come get you for your uh, first take. But it is. It's a lot of fun. My first movie, uh, Tremors, was an experience because it was my first and it was out in the desert. And then uh, I got to work with Michael Gross there. And then the next one was with uh, Kenny Rogers, Burt Reynolds, Dan Aykroyd. So it gets a lot of fun. The people you get to work with is the best part. You had to know that when you were going to write a book like this, even with a collaborator, that you would have to address things that you had now, up till now addressed in the media, things that were sensitive, things that you didn't really want to talk about to the media before. Are, I sense that you're not, to this day, real comfortable in discussing them uh, either in the book or in the media, but it's something that you have to tell, isn't it? Yes, it is something I have to tell. I felt that it was only fair to my fans because I didn't discuss openly or in interviews about the divorce with Charlie Battles. And then I didn't like to talk about the plane crash in 1991, which took eight of my, uh, seven of my band members, my tour manager, and two pilots, because it hurts to talk about losing someone. Um, it helps, because once you talk about it, you've almost shared the pain, and, and it takes away some of it. But we will never forget those people that we lost, and it hurts so bad to talk about it. I got a lot of criticism for not doing interviews about how I felt, but... Um, my fans understood. You know, they knew it hurt me because they've experienced losses also, and so they knew it hurts, and it hurts to talk about it. But I'm, I was very gratified and warmed to hear that, that, that the people that came to your aid after the crash, mm -hmm. uh, Waylon Jennings oh, yeah. and, and Johnny Cash and Dolly Parton and the people coming out of the woodwork, and Vince Gill, I mean, yeah. people coming out of the woodwork to be there for you. It was amazing. The, the music industry is one of the tightest knit bunch of people I've ever known in my life. We're very competitive. We're not enemies. We're, com we're competing against each other. Uh, we're, 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 we're fighting for attention almost uh, from our fans. But boy, when something happens, we pull together like the biggest family you can imagine. And it's sure neat to be in a bunch of, of uh, surrounded by a bunch of good people like the country music industry people. I, uh, you're uh, un undoubtedly now going to write a whole series of books, aren't you, this, since, uh, since Narvel had such a great idea for you to write this one? You know, I said the next person who brought that up, I might have to choke a liver out of them. <laughs> 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 oh, there were many times writing this book when I'd look over at Narvel and i said, this was your idea. This was your idea. Oh, <laughs> I'd be trying to fix it. Uh, you know, like Tom would interview me, Tom Carter, who uh, helped me write the book. He would interview me, and then he would write it all down, type it up, and then give it back to me, like a chapter at a time. And then I would go through it and fix it or add to, delete. You know, oh, I don't like that story. Well, I told you something. I don't want to put that in. And then I, something that, would, that I'd said to Tom had triggered another memory, and then I'd fill in the blanks with, um, with another story. And then when we get into the editing part, that's when things had to be kind of arranged and, and retold and kind of stories kind of got confused a little bit. It really got tense. And then when, when I got to pick out the pictures of the book, that was the most, 
I think it was the most fun for me because I'm a, I'm a picture fanatic. I love old family pictures, and that was the hardest thing for me is trying to pick out which one. We have over 100 pictures in the book, and, and a lot of them, the majority, are from my own personal collection. One thing I would like to add to the folks who are going to read this book of mine, it's my story. Um, I'm not a perfect person. I have done a few wrong things, uh, and but in my life, I know that all my mistakes have made me a stronger person. I've learned from my mistakes, and I hope that when they turn the last page and finish the book, that I hope that they know me better, and I hope that they forgive me for my shortcomings because i got a bunch of them. Has your golf game improved? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible. Reba McIntyre's latest album, Stronger Than the Truth, was released last year. She was also recently a guest star on TV's Young Sheldon, and her own TV series, Reba, is still seen in syndication. Now, that celebrity story that I promised you. It's an April day in 1994. Both my daughters were with me. My older daughter, Jenny, in particular, was a real Reba fan. So, as the appointed hour for the interview approached, I went out to the lobby of our building to make sure that Reba didn't have to wait in the lobby for me to come get her. I was going to be there to wait for her. So Jenny came with me. We're both standing in the lobby. Uh, Through the glass doors, you could see the elevator to our building. And the elevator doors open, and Reba sweeps out, just majestically. She's got a long, kind of maroon, velvet coat of some kind. She looks regal. Jenny is trembling. Reba comes inside the glass door. She looks at me, but heads straight for Jenny. Sticks her hand out and says, Hi, I'm Reba McIntyre. And Jenny looks at her and says, I know. (laughs) I could see that in my mind. That's one of my favorite stories. And Jenny loves that story too, by the way. Now, would you do me a favor? If you liked today's episode, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us on all major podcast apps. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, let's go back almost 35 years to my first interview with the uniquely iconic filmmaker and author, John Waters. Some people read the books and see the movies and say, my God, can you imagine if my parents saw this? I think that's part of the appeal. But I'm lucky enough that there's enough people in the world that share my sense of humor that enable me to make a living doing what I want. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.